Managing Director at Boston Private. Today we continue our series of discussions focused on the results of the Family Office Survey that we recently re released. In that report, we asked over 200 Family Office executives to give us their thoughts on risk and threat matters that they face every single day. The reports were illuminating on one hand, uh, answered a lot of questions, uh, but also posed some new ones and gave us some insights into the risk management characteristics and behaviors of family offices. Findings certainly open some new areas to evaluate and present both opportunities for both families and advisors to those families to address risk more effectively. My guest today is Billy Govea of SRM. Uh, Billy, before we get started, you know, tell us a little about yourself and then specifically uh, focus on uh, some of your experiences with family offices. Sure. Yeah, thanks so much, Eddie. Really appreciate the time with, with you and your guests today. Um, by way of background, I run the cybersecurity business at SRM, which is a global risk consultancy, and we work with um, many dozens of incident response cases at any point in time. And so, you know, coming across my desk each day are a number of ransomware events, a number of business email compromise events, and other things like crypto jacking and credential stuffing and things like that. Uh, our, our firm focuses on uh, everything from large corporates uh, to investment funds and family offices. We have been quite busy over the course of the last number of months, as we've seen an uptick in uh, cybersecurity attacks coinciding with the pandemic targeted specifically at family offices. And so we have been brought in a number of times to help advise and investigate those incidents. Great, thanks Billy. Well, listen, let's dive into the report. And one of the, the findings that we had talked about um, with respect to family offices was around you know, risk management mindsets and attitudes. Uh, I know this is a topic that comes up with your clients and, you know, there's certainly room for some improvement based on the results that we had. What's your, been your experience uh, with this, with the families that you work with? Yeah, think, thanks very much for that. And um, I think the report offers a, a very good treatment of that subject of risk management attitudes. What we see is a bit of unevenness between the professional staff and others who might be involved in the operation of the, of the family office. By that, I mean, there's often weak links in the chain. And so one example would be, uh, you know, the recommendation to have multi-factor authentication across your environment so that it's not just your password that's protecting access to your accounts, but it's also something that, you know, you might get a text on your phone to enter into and things like that. We've seen a lot of the family office uh, professional staff use multi-factor authentication upon recommendation, but it is tough to get others involved in business and across the business you know, many, many times stakeholders across the family to embrace those types of controls. Um, and so I think when you think about a risk management mindset, it's quite important to, to realize that um, you need to take that umbrella of protection and put it across everyone who might be getting that information and have access to, um, to sensitive, sensitive data and also might be emailing regularly with those in the family office. And so what we see most, most notably with respect to business email compromise is that the first point of compromise is someone who is outside of that umbrella of protection, doesn't have that risk mindset, may not have the same low level of controls as others working directly within the office. Thanks, Billy. Uh, I think the other point, you know, certainly in your experience, you've seen a lot of sophisticated actors, you know, ranging from almost nation state level down to 
you know, hacking as a service, where, you know, where are you seeing the most common threat angles come in through? Is it still ransomware, business email compromise, and, and social media, or are there other angles to, to look at? Those are certainly the three primary vectors of attack. So, and they operate quite differently. Maybe it'd be helpful for me to step, step through them. Please do. So with ransomware, it is in, we are indeed seeing the rise of ransomware as a service. And what that means is there's an, there's an ecosystem of organized criminals um, who have created a, a supply chain, if you will, to um, you know, launch these ransomware attacks. So there'll be some, some groups that will scan the internet looking for open ports, and I'll come back to that, that comment, looking for open ports and um, wedging themselves into the environment. Then there'll be others that will um, be engaged to deploy the ransomware, encrypt the data, in some cases steal the data, then there'll be others that are engaged to do the negotiation and the payment and that sort of thing. And then they'll, they'll take the spoils and they'll divide them up accordingly, right? That is, that is very much a matter of good cyber hygiene, of putting some straightforward controls in place. I'm happy to talk about some very straightforward things that every organization can do to address the risk of that ransomware as a service. And it's also worth pointing out that the size of ransoms has been escalating at a scary pace. So, you know, five years ago, we were dealing with a lot of, a lot of ransoms that were in the $10,000 range. Um, over the, the last couple of years, it's, it's grown, the average is, is uh, crossed $100,000. And what we're seeing now, particularly in this, this calendar year, is $5 million, $10 million, $30, $50 million ransoms. These aren't just for large organizations. Those tend to be the ones that are disclosed. But when very wealthy individuals are involved and the threat actors are aware of that, the ransom demands are quite aggressive. That's a big shift. I mean, traditionally, you've, you've heard, you know, 10,000 smaller dollar amounts so that it doesn't trip uh, people uh, to go out and contact law enforcement, just pay it and hopefully make it go away. That's a, that's a, a large shift. What, what do you attribute to them? It's, it's working. They're getting paid, right? Um, it's, I think it's, it's as straightforward as that. And, um, you know, the, the number of attacks has, has grown up as people recognize that this is a, a quite a lucrative business and, um, a number of organizations just aren't prepared for it. So let me, let me return to the subject of maybe what you can do to buy down your exposure to a ransomware attack. I mentioned open ports. There are some specific ports that, um, are often left open to the internet to allow for help desks and things like that to have remote access into the environment. So called RDP, which stands for Remote Desktop Protocol and Telnet. And um, those, those ports exist on all of our computers, but if they're left open, then someone can scan the internet looking for those open ports and then uh, attack through them. And if they're only secured by one password, then you can brute force that, by which I mean you can run uh, many thousands of password login attempts uh, in, the, in the span of minutes to defeat that password protection. So, you know, the first thing I would do and it, um, is close those open ports. Those, those two that I mentioned, RDP and, and Telnet, they account for over 50% of, of ransomware attacks. The second I've already mentioned, which is multi-factor authentication, uh, particularly around your, your weaker links in the chain. Oftentimes people think about uh, multi-factor protect their most critical assets and that that's great but it is a very easy low-cost high ROI um, thing to 
to do for everyone um, who might be accessing the family offices, offices data in any way. Those two things that I mentioned, closing ports and deploying multi-factor authentication are free or very low cost. And you can get free multi-factor uh, solutions or some that are just a, a few dollars a month. And they will buy down 90% of your ransomware risk. That's, uh, that's really interesting uh, to hear though, that it's something so simple. Uh, and some of those things that can be done, it, it, it's great to to hear that um, there's an opportunity to help out there. So, uh, Billy, from the SRM angle, uh, you, you've and viewpoint, you you your firm certainly deals with a lot of cases, not just in the United States but uh, abroad. Uh, what are some of the things that you're seeing outside of North America uh, in terms of family offices and risk management in general? Uh, are, are there best practices held elsewhere? What's the scoop over there? Yeah, thanks. So the the threat remains very similar, right? These are these are global threat actor organizations that are targeting whichever um, organ whichever entities are likely to to yield the most um, most you know most payment, right? In terms of, terms of ransomware specifically, but um, and and so you know. The threat picture is is fairly similar. There are certainly some state-sponsored groups that will go after different regions more than others, um, but I don't think that's a, the primary concern of most family offices. Um, what we're what we've seen is particularly in in Europe and um, more of a focus on privacy and less uh, less on security. Whereas here in the United States, we're seeing uh, quite the opposite, right? And so. You know, GDPR and other regulations have driven that focus on on privacy elsewhere. Um, there's also, I would argue, more of a appreciation for the cybersecurity threat in in North America than there is in, in other regions of the world. And so there tends to be a bit of an easier conversation when it comes to budgeting to put the right controls in place. What about the angle of privacy? I mean, Certainly, much has been made ado of uh, GDPR in, in terms of what the Europeans are doing and, and how uh, folks in North America might be more free and, and, and giving with their, with their data uh, in exchange for services. Is there any uh, truth to that? Yeah, I, I, I think, think that's quite right. Um, and, um, you know, I think one of the one of the good things, particularly from a security perspective, that's come from all this attention on privacy, and it goes beyond GDPR. I mean, the CCPA and the new California Privacy um, Act that that's on the ballot here in a few weeks, um, both lead to some good questions around what data are you holding, and that's something quite important for I think all all family offices to consider: is are you holding data that you don't need, or are you keeping it online if you don't need to keep it online? If you ask those two simple questions, you can reduce the amount of sensitive information that uh, an adversary could get access to and thus um, reduce your risk quite a bit. Well, thanks, Billy. Uh, you know, really appreciate you joining us today. And to the folks listening, if you'd like to get in touch with Billy or if you have any questions, uh, do send us an email to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend that you check out our website. You can find numerous resources, download the paper that uh, Billy and I have been discussing, sign up for our newsletter, get this podcast, and much, much more directly in your inbox. Uh, that website is bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. 
Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever platform you prefer to listen to. And well, that's it for today. Check back for a new podcast next week. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.